Well, it's good to be back with you and to be able to share uh, God's Word with you today. So let's jump into this. Uh, I don't, lots happened over the summer. I know anybody ready for school to start? Raise your hand. Moms and dads in the house, raise your hands. I know it. You're glad to see summer come and you're glad to see it go. Uh, kids probably are a little excited, even though they'll never say that, uh, that they're going to get back into routine, catch up with some old friends. But this summer's been full of a lot. July had a lot of activities going on in it globally, and I don't know how many of y'all even watched the World Cup, but it was that once, that time of the year, that time whenever the whole world comes together and they watch the nations of the worlds compete. 32 nations get together and they compete, and Russia had, even had one friend, uh, it was a Russian friend, and no, I'm not colluding with anybody, but uh, it's a Russian friend, and they went to six different matches while... Uh, uh, it was going on. They just talked about it and they were excited about it. It was in their ho- home country. But just uh, the 40, $14.2 billion production of the World Cup, $14.2 billion production of the World Cup was trumped, 32 teams was trumped by one team. One team that is not even in the World Cup, but they were actually buried under the earth. It was a soccer team not called by any nation. It was a soccer team called the Wild Boars. You know them as the 12 boys in Thailand that were stuck in a cave with their coach. And they were stuck there for a number of days, for 17 days to be exact. And they didn't know if they would get them out alive. They didn't know if they were alive. And finally, when they found them, two British divers who were expert at diving caves and doing this very thing, found them. The world would come together and spend $9,375,000 rescuing these 12 boys. What is your life worth? Take that 12 boys in one coach and divide $9,375,000. Are they worth that? Did somebody say, hey, you know what? We'll give up to $10 million and after that we're done. No, not at all. There's one thing about this experience of the World Cup happening where the entire globe comes together to watch football or soccer, and then this little insignificant teenage team over here, buried in the earth, got more attention, more coverage in the news than the World Cup got. Think about that for a moment. Observations that I make from that, That through the lens of death, we gain a perspective on life. Sometimes we have to think about death before we can really value what's important about life. Sometimes we need to have those earth-shattering moments like we just sang about. Those kind of times whenever we get the bad reports from the doctor. Sometimes we have to go through those near-death experiences. Sometimes we have to go through loss and job loss and dream loss because it all of a sudden brings everything into perspective. And what you valued, what you thought was important, what you spent your time and attention on is not so important. All of a sudden, the World Cup wasn't as important as the wild boars stuck in the earth. Second thing that I realized from this experience was the world rallied around a common mission. The entire world, nations of the world, were contributing money and skills and expertise to rescue these little boys. 
And I think about back, I'm old enough, I can remember baby Jessica. Does anybody remember baby Jessica in 1987? Stuck in a well in Midland, Texas, 22 feet below the earth. 18-month-old baby stuck for 56 hours. President at the time, Ronald Reagan, said this about baby Jessica. Everybody in America became godmothers and godfathers of Jessica while this was going on. There's something about this tragedy, this near-death experience, this what's going to happen to baby Jessica, what's going to happen to these 12 boys, that all of a sudden perspective comes into order. And all of a sudden, we are going to rally around and we are going to do everything we can to rescue this one person even, baby Jessica. Third reality that comes in to play whenever I think about this past summer is that we will spare no expense. Like I said earlier, nobody said, okay, I'll give up to $9 million, and then after that, we're cutting off life. Whenever you think about the Chilean miners a few years ago, a similar situation. Men stuck in the earth, 2,700 or 2,300 feet below the earth, can you even imagine? Stuck for two months, 69 days in the earth not knowing how we could get them out, but the world rallies around, they will spare no expense. $20 million later, they're rescued. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying there's something about it whenever we have these earth-jawing moments, these, 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 these situations where we begin to really see what's valuable and that life is important. Life is more important than the World Cup. Life is more important than money. That we can all come together. We can all make an impact. And I wonder if the church of Jesus Christ would ever come itself to bring itself together, would ever really gain a real perspective on life. If we would begin to see people's souls as weighing in the balance of all eternity. That if we might have a different perspective, that we might rally around, that we might come together and spare no expense about rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying. Instead, it's one of those things that gets pushed back. We're talking about pursuit in this series. And we're using Jesus as our model. That's always a good example, right? We're going to use Jesus as our model. What was it that Jesus pursued in life? What was it that was most important that he would give his life towards, that he would spend his time about, that he came to this earth for, that he lived in pursuit, chasing, running after, prioritizing, setting his mission on this, setting his purpose and course of life on this, except for the fact that he was for people. And for their spiritual souls and conditions, it's so clearly said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek or to pursue, if you will, and to save the lost to give life. Now, I know there's lots of baggage, Christian baggage with lost and saved and, and rescuing the perishing. And I don't feel lost or somebody over here doesn't feel lost. But, but are they lost in their soul? Have they, have, they, have, they, have they really ever gained a, a real significant substance in life? Something that they will, again, live and die for? I, I, I don't want us to get into the, the, the fray today so much and trying to decide who's lost, who's saved, and all that kind of stuff. But let's just rally around Jesus in this one calling. 
We'll let the other take care of itself of defining what lost is as we go in on into this. But I just want us to understand that what Jesus lived his life for, what he was in pursuit for, is that he wanted to live his life in such a way as to give life. And I wonder if we would take on that same pursuit that we are to live our lives to give others lives to live. That, 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 that we would give life to others, the life that we have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That we literally live out our life, one, assessing, do I have a, a quality and a quantity and a substantive and a significant element of my life? Has my soul been truly saved? And then has my life helped other people's lives where we would literally say, hey, you know, the World Cup's not that important. Let's go save the wild boars stuck in the ground. We would literally start looking at people's lives and souls as something that I can contribute to, that I can make their life better, fuller, more complete and whole. We're going to spend our time this fall studying through the life or studying through the writings, really, of the Apostle John. Now, last year, uh, through my study time, I felt like God was leading us to study through Romans. We looked at Philippians and Colossians over the past year and a half. And really, we spent a lot of time looking at the Apostle Paul. But this fall, especially, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the Apostle John and his writings. We're going to be in John 20, if you want to be finding that. We'll be there in just a moment. But as we, as we get there and as you think about John, I want you to think about what do you know about the Apostle John? And to be honest with you, I'm quite disappointed with all the theological brains and minds out there that there has not been, and I've asked three New Testament professors to give me recommendations for biographies on the Apostle Paul, and every, all three of them from three different institutions all said, I do not know of a good biography on the Apostle John. There's not one out there. There is a study out by Beth Moore, a 10-week study. If you want to do your own study, it's called The Beloved Disciple. If you want to do your own study on the Apostle John, uh, 10 weeks while we're studying through the Gospel of John now, and as we're going to be in 1 John later in the fall, you could do that and and do your own study as a family or as an individual. What do you know about the Apostle John? Here's some quick facts, just some fast facts just to kind of give us a context. One is the Apostle John was would be one of the top of three Jesus' disciples, if you will. He was in the top. He was in the, he was a, a, of the cabinet, the executive team, if you will. He was the lead thinkers, the core team members. He was one of the top disciples because whenever you mention the disciples and you ever see a listing of them, you'll always see John is at the top. He's again considered the beloved disciple is what he's re- referred to in, in Scripture. I will tell many people who are new followers in Christ to take the Gospel of John and to read one chapter a day because it takes 21 days to develop a habit. Well, there's 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. So take the first 21 days of your new faith and read one chapter a day for 21 days. And at the end of 21 days, you'll have a good new habit of reading through the life of Jesus. It's the most intimate account of all the Gospels in the life of Jesus. And so you really want to get fall in love with Jesus, read the Gospel of John. He's the third most prolific writer in the New Testament. There's more written by, there's more different genres written by John than by Paul. And Paul wrote most of the New Testament. You find that John writes the narrative, 
the Gospel of John. You find that John writes three different letters in the, gospel, in, in, the, in the New Testament, short as they may be. He writes them, and then he writes the only Apocrypha book in the entire New Testament, the book of Revelation. So he writes from three different genres, if you will, of literature. So he's a, he's a very diverse in his writing. John also cultivated, uh, well, excuse me, outlived most of the other disciples. He outlived most of the other disciples in the fact that John or Paul died and Peter died long before, maybe two, three decades before the apostle John died. He outlived many of them. One other fact about John is John was a pastor. If Paul was a missionary, always pushing the boundaries, always pushing the lostness, always trying to go to where the gospel's never been preached, that's the apostle Paul, you find John coming behind him and discipling a lot of the churches that Paul helped to start. He writes seven letters in the book of Revelations to the churches of Asia Minor in Western Turkey. That alone tells you that he was a discipler coming behind them, helping them mature in their faith. He writes, uh, again, three letters that we know of in the New Testament. Many of them are discipleship-oriented kind of letters where he's trying to grow up believers, trying to keep out the heresy at bay. He's, He's really a pastor at heart whenever you look at the Apostle John. Just some fast facts on him. But now let's look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to go to the last, second to the last chapter in, in John's gospel. And we're going to start at the end. And then we're going to go back next week to the beginning. We're going to start in chapter 1. We'll spend two weeks in chapter 1. Then we'll go to chapter 3. And then we'll go to chapter 4. And we're going to just kind of work our way, survey through the gospel of John. And what we're going to see as John is writing from the perspective of, I want you to fall in love with Jesus. We're going to fall in love with Jesus, but we're going to see how much he is pursuing people in his life to give them life, okay? And just as we're called as a disciple of Christ living in the footsteps of Jesus, we are called to live our life in the same manner in which Jesus lived his life. He lived his life to give life. So we got to ask ourselves, are we doing, living the same way? And John chapter 20 is really the climax of the book. Now he wraps it up in John 21, no doubt. Lots, lots of great material in John 21. But in John 20, it's really where he brings the resurrection out. He talks about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection to change life. He even talks about Mary Magdalene and and how Mary Magdalene was the first person to see the resurrected Christ, the first person to hear from the resurrected Christ. Let me say one more thing about Mary Magdalene. She was the first person to preach the resurrection message. Yes, she went and she told the disciples that they were, that Jesus uh, had risen from the dead. His body was gone. And so she was the first one to preach a resurrection message. So stick that in your theological pipe and smoke it uh, for a moment. You also find where John and Peter, and they get in a foot race, and John, he refers to himself in the third person here. He talks about how they raced to Jesus, and John ran on ahead. Basically saying, I could beat Peter in a foot race any day of the week. Uh, he was this fat fisherman. I don't know what it, what, what it was. But anyway, John beats him to Jesus, and they talks about the impact that the resurrection has on the life of Peter and the life of John. So the resurrection had an impact on the life of Mary. The resurrection had an impact on the life of Peter and John. It goes on to talk about Thomas, doubting Thomas. We know the story of doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas will go on to become one of the greatest missionaries to India, modern-day India, where this to this very day there are people in India that can trace their roots back to the Apostle Thomas. 
I want to say that the impact of the of the resurrection changes everything because what is the resurrection but it's the completion of the death burial and resurrection of Christ that changes everything why does it change everything it's the gospel it changes everything about us and whenever the gospel when the resurrection has taken its full seated effect on our life it will change you it will give you life a life that will enable you to give life to others Merrill Tinney said it like this. He said, Belief in the risen Christ made a mourner into a missionary, a penitent into a preacher, a bereaved friend into the apostle of love, a timid and shirking cadre of disciples into fearless heralds of a movement, a doubter into a confessor. The resurrection gave them life to give life. The resurrection gives you life to give life. It is never just for your own satisfaction and your own fulfillment and your own joy and your own security in eternity. It is always given for you to give it away. It's always life for you to give life to others. And in the middle of this passage of Scripture in John chapter 20, we come to verse 19. And we begin to see when Jesus starts coming around his disciples after appearing to Mary, after appearing to Peter and and, and John, he says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear. Now, just let that one set in. Coward, tucked away, in seclusion, with the door deadbolt, living a life of fear of the Jews. Why? Because the Jews just murdered Jesus. They might come and murder them. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands. And his side. Then the disciples were, they were glad. And when they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you for Forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it will it is withheld. When you look at this passage, you see the pursuit of Jesus. And you see him passing on the pursuit of Jesus onto his disciples. We're all pursuing something. Fame, fortune, health. We're all pursuing accolades. We're all pursuing promotion. We're all pursuing something. We're in in here right now fighting off the thoughts of what we're going to be pursuing this afternoon or what we're going to be pursuing this week. We're constantly in this battle, but I want to say no matter what you pursue, may you pursue a life that gives life.
Whatever context you find yourself in, may you pursue a life that gives life. May you assess what is the health of my life? What, how healthy is my life pursuit? What does a healthy life pursuit look like? Think about that for a moment. At the end of your life, when it's all said and done, will the summation of your life be this? They lived the best life they could possibly live. They had a life of substance. They had a life of significance. They had a full life. They had a quality life. What would that look like? When Jesus calls us out of death into life, when he calls us out of losses into saveness, when he calls us uh, from, from being once born to being twice born, when he calls us to this life transformation because of the resurrection of Christ, when he calls us out of this and he calls us into this new life, it is so that we would have a life of substance and significance. When we, ha- when we live a life that gives life to others, then we are on our way to living that life of substance and significance. Let's talk about those two. Those are two big rocks, if you will. Put the rocks in the jars of your life. You want to put one in there? Put substance in there. And let's call that the life that I pursue. Pursue a life of substance, number one. What does that look like? You know, we're, I turned another decade older in my absence from you guys. I'm another decade older, and I'll let you just try to figure out what decade I'm in. But I'm old. I feel older. My birth certificate says I'm older. Interesting thing about a birth certificate, it will tell you the day, the time, the, everything about where you were born, your parents, of who you were born to. It'll tell you everything about the beginning of your life. There'll be a day though that there will be a voided out birth certificate and it will be replaced by what's called a death certificate. One will say this is, this is when he was born and this is when he died. And this is when he uh, started his life and this is when he lived his life. But nothing on either of those certificates will say anything about the substance of my life. My life lived in the dash is going to be determined of whether or not I have substance or not. And some people live in the dash and they just live from one dumpster fire to another dumpster fire, one bad relationship to another bad relationship, one career pathway to another career pathway. They can't ever seem to find themselves. They're always looking and never finding. They're always living and always spending and always buying and always consuming. And they never figure out what it means to live a substantive life. Well, we know how to count our years, but do we know how to make our years count? the quantity and the quality of life. When Jesus was promised to come in Isaiah, he was promised that he would be the Prince of Peace. When he came and the angels herald that he came, the very first words that they said that Jesus had come, he said, the Prince of Peace has been born. He said, don't fear. He says, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It wasn't just granting us peace. It was granting us peace in a person. You find here after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus said the same statement two different times. 
You don't want to miss this. He says it in two different emotional situations, if you will. And the first time he says it, notice what he says there. Again, notice the circumstances that they wonder. They were being locked where the disciples were for fear. So much of people's lives are driven by fear. If, if we were pulled back a layer, just a layer, a thin layer for some people in this room, but a layer nonetheless, uh, behind some of you are, is driven a life of fear. Fear of tomorrow, fear of health, fear of death, fear of life, fear of what will happen to the kids, fear of about tomorrow, fear of who your teacher is going to be this next year, fear of uh, who's going to accept me in school and who's going to reject me at school, fear of will I make the grades or fear of this. And we live a life locked in fear. And Jesus will step into the situations of our life. And I love it that he speaks into our life no matter what the fear is, fill in the blank. No matter how justified in our mind the fear is, and what's his words? Peace be with you. Wow. I, I know it's more than a Hallmark card he's writing here. He's literally saying, I want myself to be in yourself so that I, my life will give you life, so that my peace will give you peace, so that you will have the peace that I am because I'm the Prince of Peace. Peace be in you. Peace be with you. Those of you who are gripped in your fears, I pray the peace of God would be yours. But he doesn't end there. It's very interesting. He steps on the scene. Jesus appears. He shows his sides. He shows his hands. And the next situation is we find this bipolar, if you will, swing of emotions because they go from being fearful to being glad. They go from being sad to being happy. To, they, they, they're on the mountaintop. They're, they're, they're no longer seeing death before their eyes. They're seeing the resurrected Christ. The, the disciples were once in fear, but now the disciples are glad. There's joy in their hearts. There's excitement in their life. And, hey, yeah, I, I want to be that guy. And I don't want to be that guy. But sometimes I have to wrestle with fear. Well, what was Jesus' response in this? I, I love it. It just blew me away this week when I saw this. He said, what was his response? The same as his response was with fear. Peace. Say it with me. Be with you. Here's what's so amazing about Jesus in our life. It doesn't matter if we're in the pit of despair and we're locked away in fear in a room and we cannot get out of it for fear of tomorrow, for fear of everything else, or we're on the mountaintop because life has just been so peaceful and wonderful and grand and glorious. It doesn't matter that the peace of God spans and goes further and it goes farther and transcends the circumstances of our life. When the peace of God is with you, it is in you, and there's substance in that. 
And when you know Jesus, the resurrection, the resurrected Christ, you will know and you will live a life of substance. How do we get to this peace? Romans 5.1 says it like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It happens thousands and thousands and thousands of times. It happened to me when I was eight years old. May it will happen to you today. I walked into a church not having a clue what I'd be blindsided by. But I was blindsided by a message that Jesus could be my peace. Growing up in a broken home, full of broken dreams, and a broken life, my mother did her very best to make it as whole as she could be, but it was still broken. And I don't care what parents you have. You grew up in a broken home. And I don't care what kind of parent you are. You're a broken parent. But there's something about an encounter with the resurrected Christ that the peace of God doesn't just live on the outside making all of our circumstances right, but He moves inside and He makes our life whole. And it'll be on a Sunday like this that maybe you will give your life to following Jesus. You'll say, Jesus, I need your peace. In a few moments, we're going to have some prayer partners around the room. They'll have lanyards on, and they'll say prayer partner. And you'll be given an opportunity to go to one of them and just say, hey, I want to give my life to following Jesus because I'm tired of synthetic life. I'm tired of a substitutionary life. I'm tired of a fake life. I want a life of substance. That no matter what the circumstances of my life may tell me, His peace will abide in me. And if that is you today, I invite you to give your life to Jesus so that He can give His life to you. And once you have that life, it's not for your own consumption. It turns you in to a significant contributor to life in giving life. Let's talk about number two. When you're talking about pursuing life, we ought to pursue a life of significance. Giving life. I've got a lot more content I don't have time to give you, but we'll just move it to this. Significance. Giving life. I, I have life. I live life. I live a life of substance. I have the peace of God in me so that I can give life. It's not just for my own consumption. I love the story of Bob Buford. I got to sit in a room with Bob Buford one time. He was a millionaire in his mid-30s. He made lots of money through the television industry and the cable industry when it was just mushrooming and and taking off. And and he tells a story in his book, Halftime, uh, that he really found great wealth and success in life and made his millions upon millions of dollars by, by the time he was in his middle 30s, which for some in this room may be the aspiration of your life. You need to get the book halftime and you need to read it. 
because he realized at some point in his life that all the success and all the planning and all the execution in life led him empty. And he said, I need to have, I need to move from success to significance, thus the subtitle of the book. And I think about the life in which Jesus and God has designed us to live is not for our own self-grandizement. Whenever you look at the scriptures and you find when David was even praying his prayer in Psalm 67, he said this, he said, may God be gracious to us. That seems very self-centered, right? Bless us. I love that. Let's keep praying this kind of prayer. Make his face shine upon us. Now, those who memorize scripture will many times stop at verse 1. But they don't realize that for the purpose of that your way may be known in all the earth, that you're saving power among all the nations and let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. God, I want you to bless me. God, I want you to be gracious to me. God, I want you to shine your face upon me. God, I want you to give me a substantive life, but it's not for my own. It's so that my life can give life to others so that my life can transform, be a part of the transformation of somebody else's life. Whenever, whenever David, that was David's prayer, whenever uh, Abraham was called by God, what did God say to him in Genesis chapter 12? He said, I will make you a great nation. Pretty cool promise. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Stop there. Boy, wouldn't we want to pray that prayer? God's going to do all of this through Abram. Isn't that awesome, Abram? God's going to bless you. You're going to be a great nation, not just a great family, a great nation. He's going to make your name great. You're going to be remembered for generations as the patriarch of the patriarchs. Why are you going to do this? So that, purpose clause, you will be a blessing. A life that gives life. I will bless those who bless you and... In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We are to live our life so that others can have life. We are to give life. Why do we talk about living sin? Because when you look at the scriptures and you see how Jesus was called and how he went out, we are sharing and we are showing and we are telling and we are sharing and showing Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people because everybody needs life. Everybody needs life. We did a study back in a phone survey. You know when we do those from time to time, we take out your phone and you, and you call it and you dial in a text message. And this is a study that we did back in on Mother's Day this year. We found that 55% of our people have, over 55% of our people have relationships, five or more relationships with people far from God. Now, why do you think God puts you on this earth? Now, you can give a lot of answers, but I'll tell you this. If he put five people in your life, you might be still breathing on planet earth because God wants you to take the life that he's put in you and share your life with all those who don't have life. Think about that. 
That literally God is giving you another day to live, to breathe, to go on. Here's the problem, though. Many times people will, the longer their followers of Christ, the fewer and fewer followers, the fewer and fewer believers, or excuse me, the fewer and fewer unbelievers that are in their life. I'll say it to you like this. The average church member has between seven to nine friends or relatives outside of Christ, okay? The newer the Christian, members are the more unbelievers or unchurched friends they have, 12. The older the Christians are, the fewer the unchurched, lost, far from Christ people they have, four, on average four. What's the point of this? is that what happens is we get cleaned up. We get in the Jesus circle. We get in the Jesus bubble. And we just forget those that are outside of Christ. And that's never what we're called to do. We have to intentionally leave the comforts of our surroundings. And we need to get in with people who are far from God, Christ. 14 times from John chapter 4 to John chapter 8, does Jesus refer to himself as being sent by God? 14 times in a matter of four chapters, Jesus knew full well that he was sent by God to give life to those who did not have life. First Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, Christ came into the world to save sinners. First John, we'll read first John later on in the fall. The Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God was sent by the Father. Now verse, uh, if you go to verse, uh, go to verse 21. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I I'm sending you. We have a challenge before us in this series. The challenge is this. One, assess, do you have life? Is Christ in you? And secondly, is your life giving people life? Giving others life. There's a card that you hopefully got when you came in. And I just want this phrase, though corny as it may sound, that you may be alive for five. I want you to take your hand and I want you to think of if 55% of our people have five or more friends that are far from God. I want you to think of five of your friends that you meet with, encounter, that you have family members that are far from God, that you have regular conversations with. And I don't want you to give this to me. You're not going to give it to me. You're not going to give it to anybody else. This is going to be yours. And I want you to take this next week and I just want you to say, God, open my eyes to five people that you would have me to pray for for the next 12 months. That's a year, if you didn't know that. Next 12 months. I'm going to pray for them every day. I'm going to pick one a day. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them. I started praying for two people alone at... uh, at, um, 
a strategy meeting, when we start praying for an awakening among our church, it's so beautiful to see that God is already, I can see it. I'm in their life every day or on a a regular basis, and I'm starting to see them warmed up to conversations about Jesus like never before, just two people in a matter of two months. What if every one of us said, I'm alive for five, and for the next year, I'm going to pray that, to no end that they come to know Jesus Christ. Think about the people who risk their lives going after that Thailand soccer team. Even one Navy SEAL gave his life, the two British expert divers. Those boys would have never been saved had that not happened. Had they not risked their life, and one Navy still gave his life so that he could go, so those boys could be saved. All total, the expert divers that went into the caves to help rescue them, you realize it took 200 divers risking their life to save 12 boys and a soccer coach. It may take this entire church praying and going, giving life, living life, sharing life, with people around us to see 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 people give their life to Christ. We are to live our life to give life to others. When I was preparing this message this past week, I was at, I, I, at the end of my sabbatical week, I went and spent uh, a few days at the CrossFit Games. As many of you all know, that's my uh, hobby, uh, if you will. And I went to the CrossFit Games and I met a person there the very first day I was there and we hit it off. His name's, I'm going to call him Evan. It's not his name. I'm going to call him Evan. And Evan and I hit it off. And the funny thing is, is that we had a reason to see each other for the first couple of days. And then after that, we had no reason to see each other. But we continued every single day in the midst of thousands of people to run into each other. And then... I wake up, I'm an early riser, I'm waking up, I'm working on this message, I'm in my, in my hotel room and I'm pounding away and I'm drinking my coffee and I'm pounding away and I'm working on this message and I run out of coffee. So what do you do? You go to the lobby to get more coffee. And so that's what I did. I went to the lobby and I got more coffee. And, and then I go back to my room with my hot coffee and I get there and my key that's worked all week long doesn't work. And so I go, I go back to the lobby. So I go back to the lobby. I take my key to the counter. I say, hey, my key doesn't work. Get in my room. The guy tested. I says, it says it's supposed to be working. I said, dude, it's not working. He said, he says, you need to go try it again. If it doesn't work, we'll have to wait till maintenance gets here to get you into the room. This is going to be great. I mean, God's on the other side of that door waiting for me to get in to finish this message. And my computer's in there, my stuff's in there, my clothes are in there. I am closed enough to be in the lobby. But uh, everything's on the other side of that door, and you're going to... Okay, I turn around, and Evan's there at 6 in the morning in my hotel. I hadn't seen him one time in my hotel. It was always at the games. It was always at this event. It was always there. And there's Evan. And so I go over, and I sit down, and I talk with Evan. And I end up sharing the gospel with Evan. He ends up asking me, saying, hey, Mike, what do you do? I said, I know you, I know you coach some, but what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he said, I, I can't say what he said. He actually said a cuss word. But he said it in just one of his own words. He said, man, I never guessed that. And uh, that could be good. That could be bad. 
But uh, I said, man, I just love seeing people's lives changed. I just love it whenever someone comes into a relationship with Jesus and their life is set straight again. And he got as somber as he could as he started talking then about his family and his daughter who had just gone through a divorce and about what he wanted for his daughter and what he wanted for himself. And I wish I could tell you that Evan right there in the lobby of that hotel room gave his life to Christ, but he didn't. But I'm praying for him. I, I saw him three or four other times the rest of the week. And I went down to the hotel, my, my hotel room after about 30 minutes, and guess what? The key worked. And it worked the rest of the week. And it wasn't, it was like this guy just yelled at me. He said, Mike, you're preparing a message on sharing life that gives life or having a life that gives life. The work that you need to be about is in the lobby of the hotel. You need to be given life, not talking about giving life. And we in the ministry, we can talk a big game. But if we're not in it, if we're not giving it, we're missing it. Would you bow your heads with me? There's, there's two ways today you can respond to this message. There's really one way to respond. It's how will you respond? Will you surrender your life to Jesus? Jesus wants to be the peace, the substance of your life. He wants to give you life. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I strongly, strongly encourage you. In a moment, after I pray, everyone's going to stand. Our prayer partners will be in position for you to go to them and to just say, hey, I, I need, just say it like this, I need the Prince of Peace in my life. I need substance. I need Jesus. And just surrender yourself. They'll pray with you. They'll talk about what next step is, what that means, where you need to go next. Maybe, maybe you're here today and say, yeah, 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 Mike, I've done that. You've been consuming life, but you haven't been giving life. Would you today realize that you're alive for a reason? And it's not just so you can consume life. It's that you might give life. Who can you give life to? Father God, you know us. You know where we're at. We pray in these moments that you would help us to assess the substance and the significance of our own lives. And may we surrender, dear God, to you as the Prince of Peace, as the giver of life who gives us the power to give life to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together.